Welcome to Politics Done Right. I am your host, Egberto Willis. This is a progressive program that will take the mystery out of politics. This is the program that will encourage you to make sure government becomes we the people. Whether you are liberal, progressive, conservative, or otherwise, you get to air your point of view. We are an independent media outlet that, unlike mainstream media beholden to corporations, we only owe allegiance to you. Remember, you can also send me a tweet at E-G-B-E-R-T-O-W-I-L-L-I-E-S. That is at Egberto Willis. Let us engage. It is politics done right. Welcome to Politics Done Right from the studios of KPFT 90.1 FM Houston, your community radio station. We have a great program for you today. You can get Politics Done Right Mondays through Fridays on Facebook Live at facebook.com slash politics done right. On YouTube Live at politics slash YouTube. Please do not forget to follow me on Twitter for updates. My handle is at Egberto Willis at E-G-B-E-R-T-O-W-I-L-L-I-E-S. Before you get started, please remember to keep your community radio station in your minds, KPFT in your minds. Talk about it. Tell your friends about it. Tell them you know about this station in town, 90.1 FM Houston, that needs your support, that is there to provide what that nourishment that we need. 713-526-5738. KPFT.org. Visit us online. Contribute online. KPFT. 90.1 FM. You can visit us at kpft.org. We have a lot to talk about, folks. Uh, first of all, we are honored that Politics Done Right will be on twice a week going forward. On Thursdays, we keep our time at 12 noon at Central Standard Time. And on Fridays, we are at 11 a.m. Central Standard Time. Why is that important? Because we're going to try to have the shows have two different flavors. The the national international flavor will be on Thursdays, and we will keep continue to keep the international national flavor on Friday, but we would like to have an insert of commu- more local community events, etc. So if you are out there listening to us right now, recognize that Politics Done Right is your show. And in being your show, you send emails to info at politicsdoneright.com, info at politicsdoneright.com with whatever community event, whatever community action you want to cover. Are you a journalist? Do you want to uh, have a conversation for the rest of Houston to hear? Are you from an organization who normally doesn't get play from our mainstream media? Are you a newspaper, local newspaper, or whatever? We are here. Politics Done Right, KPFT 90.1 FM Houston, we are here to serve. So please remember, info at politicsdoneright.com, if you want to get to me to tell me you want to talk about X, Y, or Z, so that we can get you on air after we find out what you're wanting to talk about, because again, this is your show. Community radio, we want to ensure that community is, in fact, within community radio. And yes, all the national and international news is something the entire community needs, but the community as well, we want to ensure we support what you need 
locally, nationally, internationally. Anyhow, we have a great program for you today. We have El Señor Arturo Dominguez. He is a local activist, a local journalist. Um, he is now a member of Woke, the writers and editors of color. Uh, he's going to talk about the 1619 Project relative to what many Afro-Latinos think about um, this particular project. Um, he, he kind of explains quite a few things about why some of the critiques are not well-intentioned and probably not well-designed as well. We're also going to have a piece that I did from my program uh, last yesterday on the internet, on all the different internet channels we run, where uh, one of our good supporters had a, a race statement that I wanted to explore a bit further. So we do that. And of course, we have our standard clips that we bring in that occurs over uh, the national news. I will, I, I, what we'll do is we'll start with the clips. Then we'll bring in Arturo Dominguez. And after Arturo Dominguez, we'll go ahead and address one of my uh, listeners who had a, a statement with regards to uh, taking race into account. So, you know, folks, we are going to have a good one for you. So sit tight. But before you sit too tight, I want you to have, I want you to listen to this empowering message by one of our most devout listeners and supporters, Tom Cernak. Listen to this and we'll take it. But I was thinking about that today, too. I'm thinking, like, it's too bad, you know, our country is becoming so polarized and so disunited, like the disunited states or the divided states mm -hmm. of America, which, which makes it kind of a, a terrible situation if you want to get anything done for the common good or for the community of, of people. And I was just, I was making notes today of just thinking about uh, it's just too bad that we have this attitude in our country that, you know, freedom is everything for, for a lot of people. It's like, don't don't bother me with your problems. You know, I'm, I'm it is, you know, it just is. solve your own problems. Be on your own. Be an individual. Be a man or whatever. You know, it's like it is sad. You know, um, I just want to say that uh, Leroy says just want to say greetings. I'm from Anchorage, Alaska, and I'm joining in to learn more. I will work on getting the microphone operational, can hear very well. I'm glad that yeah. you, you're hearing well, Leroy, and thank you so kindly for being here. Man, you're in Alaska. Hey, I'm originally <laughs> from Central America. That is like maybe 100 degrees uh, in difference <laughs> between where yeah, I'm from. Kind of, I'm kind of right in the middle of Michigan, so it's like... Yeah, so I, 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 all I can do is salute you for being able to handle that cold, my brother. I can only salute you. But, you know, I want to respond to what you had to say, um, Tom, because... Here's, here's why I take the stance that I take and why not only that, but I respect guys like uh, even Ledo, Mike Cisak and all the right wingers and so forth. Not the politicians, the people. Right. And the reason why is if you ever sit down and just talk to people, right? Forget about their ideology and all of that. Don't talk for, for one second. Don't talk politics. Talk about the things that you want. Talk about the things that you would like to see happen in your community. It is so amazing that it would be pretty damn similar, you know? Now, what generally happens then is people try to find a way to make the things that 
the little difference of one thing and the other that you'd want and, and play that up. It is like, let's look at the critical race theory, right? Oh, yeah. The critical race theory, I find it kind of interesting because we want, we, we, we learn in school that the reason we teach history is so that we don't make the same mistakes over and over again. That's what we, exactly. that's what we teach, right? Exactly. And we don't teach history to say uh, white people are bad or, or anything like that, because you know what's so funny? Uh, as somebody once said, there were black people in the South with slaves as well. I'm not trying to equate things at all. So black people don't knock me out for saying this. Right. But what I'm trying to say is that humanity has a common string, right? Humanity has a common thread. And that common thread is that we all have the predisposition to do good or do wrong. We all do. And it's, right. it's not... It's not hue-based, it's not pigment-based, it's not race-based. It so happened to be that in these times, there is a, a where power is concerned, we know where it's at. So if, if people start to learn that kind of stuff and also realize that things that I try to preach on my show, and, and Leroy, I hope you start coming to our show at politicsandright.com slash TV every day, every weekday at 4 Eastern, 3, 3 Central. What I what I like to point out is that racism is not a black against of a black thing only. It actually hurts white people. It hurts everybody, you know. And if you can actually get people to understand that they are using my pigmentation to screw their own and uh, their the, 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 the people of their own pigment. That, it's, that is so stupid. Pigment, pigment, pigment. That doesn't mean anything, right? Pigment is stupid, right? right? right. But I mean, still, they're, in other words, by they're, they're using that division so that they can further pilfer people that look like them. Yeah, you know, you know what the problem is? They, I was thinking of this too, the hue... Hugh man, you know, you talk about Hugh man. So Hugh is, is part of our, is part of who we are. We always judge by appearances, which is, it's sad. Mm -hmm. but, uh, but what really is the, the color problem today, I think is green. Hey, you know, exactly. Yeah. And well, green for money and also green for nature. So we've mm -hmm. got this two, the two greens involved here. We, should we help nature? Or should we help, you know, should we just be concerned about ourselves and go for money? And I don't know if you got a chance to read it. It's it's a it's a real interesting article. But David Brooks just came out with a, an article, uh, kind of uh, critiquing his own thinking of ten years ago. It, it, it's it, it, he wrote this article called um, Oh God, I don't know the exact title. It's it's about the Bobos. I don't know. Is it his latest article or is it one of yeah, his latest? Yeah, it's, it's in the Atlantic. I'll look and it up. I'll look it up. I posted a link now. But just Google uh, David Brooks Bobo right. and, and Atlantic. And the articles, it's quite a long article, but it's really, I had to read it twice. But I think it's really interesting because he goes through this critique of what's going on in America. And he he had, he had he, he was actually self-critical. He says, yeah, I'm one of the Bobos. And Bobo stands for bourgeoisie bohemians. And he talks about <laughs> and nice I thought it really, yeah. And it's and he gets into this thing about money. He says, people that get into wealth and status and they get into this culture, uh, uh, he calls it the creative culture, and they get it, they and it looked like he said, Oh, this is great at first. He says they're gonna they're gonna change America because they have progressive attitudes. 
And it turns out that really the first thing they they they, they do when they get into the status is they insulate themselves. Mm-hmm. They start thinking they start thinking like the ultra wealthy, maybe even that, that they're not ultra wealthy, but they start right. insulating themselves from the rest of the world. And it becomes a, a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy. They, they start thinking just like each other and they want to exclude everybody else. And this, this has to do with buying, uh, you know, into schools, uh, Ivy League schools and, and, and cheating on tests and, and doing and 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 making sure that your your wealth status continues to grow so you can protect your kids and your legacy and people just get so selfish at that level and it's and he he was very upset about it and it um and he kind of diagnosed all the different segments of society i didn't really quite understand all what he was talking about i want to read it again but i got to check I it out he, that sounds I think interesting he's got a good point and yeah, he, I'm he, he it. yeah I'm going to check it out out because um, I have this love-hate relationship with David Brooks, you know? Yeah, yeah. Sometimes he comes out, he's so conservative. Yeah, but but there are some times that he writes some zingers that are really, really good. So I'm going to try, I'm going to to look that one up and uh, check it out. Yeah, because he... He, he talks about wealth and income. It's mostly wealth inequality, mm-hmm. but it even, it, it's even more subtle than that. It's 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 beyond money. It's more of a cultural thing, which I thought was an interesting way of looking at it. Because I right. see it around me, you know, in Brighton. I mean, there's this. You, we have poor people here too, but I, you know, I'm, they probably vote straight cons- conservative Republican mm-hmm. because they have this cultural mindset that you know, this is the group I'm in, and and I want to identify with you know the people here and. They don't see themselves as part of a, a, a bigger uh, culture and, and, and part of a problem that needs to be resolved. So it's it's a, that's one of the things that Democrats have to work on in, in trying to appeal to the poor people of rural America and the people that are left out in the working class. We have to s- broaden that whole movement so that everybody feels connected. One hopes that Liz Cheney that many Republican people, not the politicians, we know that they're long gone, as she's going to explain in a minute, but we really hope that the Republican constituents understand the clear and present danger that Donald Trump and his sycophants represent. Check this out, and then we'll take it on the other side. We are also confronting a domestic threat that we've never faced before. A former president who's attempting to unravel the foundations of our constitutional republic, aided by political leaders who have made themselves willing hostages to this dangerous and irrational man. We spend a lot of... That is one of the most striking statements a Republican established politician can make. In effect, she's calling all the Trump sycophants, which is the vast majority of the politicians within the Republican Party, she's calling them out as willing hostages. In other words, they know what they're doing. They understand that it's deeper than the Stockholm Syndrome. When a Liz Cheney, someone that I don't really support, somebody whose ideology is diametrically opposed to that of progressives, but one woman 
whose strength, who's using her strength, has come out better than any man in the Republican Party, better than any of the sycophant women in the Republican Party, any of those independent claimers in the country. She has come out and made the necessary statement that I hope enough Republicans in 2022, enough independents in 2022, understand the consequences of allowing these willing hostages to remain in power. Uh, this morning, as I drank some coffee with my daughter, an, an ad sort of went by and I thought I heard what I thought I heard. And I had to get the remote from her and rewind it and then grabbed my cell phone to tape it because it is the kind of ad that is so effective and we can't allow it to go unnoticed because it could have an impact on legislation, specifically as they continue to build, uh, build back better because of the influence of the you know, older people, and if they decide that they are going to believe the lie. So now, let's go ahead and play it, and then we'll take it on the other side. I take medication for systemic lupus and cancer. Recently, I've been hearing about Medicare negotiation and how some in Congress think it's a good idea. It isn't. In countries where the government sets prices and controls access, patients experience dangerous wait times. Some never gain access to the life-saving medicines we have here in America. Government price setting will hurt seniors like me. Let's never let that happen here. Let me tell you, I cannot express how uh, how completely and entirely pissed as a political activist that I was seeing that ad, and that not only political activists but any thinking person should feel about it. I, I wonder immediately thereafter making the tape, I went ahead and and did the blog. And I, I want to read a portion of the blog because you heard what she had to say. She made the claim that somehow other countries that do this, their, their people are in dire straits. Well, look, here's the reality. And let me tell you what I wrote. Um, I wrote as follows. This morning, well, let's, let's start with the thing. Ironically, the woman in the ad has the same disease that my wife has, systemic lupus erythematosus SLE. There have not uh, been any significant strides on this disease, likely because it does not affect enough people. And that is the problem with having system a system that is dependent on for-profit drugs. Let's discuss several drugs specific to the mentioned disease, SLE, in the ad. It has been managed successfully for decades uh, with old medications no longer under patent like prednisone, less than $20 a month, hydrochloroquine, less than $10 a month. And if one has kidney involvement, high, uh, it's called uh, my, mycophilate molfelts. I, I am not good at pronouncing these names, but you get the point. You can get that particular drug for under $60 a month. My wife participated in that study, the Ben uh, Benlista study by Big Pharma, 
GSK, a big former called GlaxoSmithKline. They are the ones who developed Ben Lister. Supposedly, if you have nephritis or some uh, lupus, uh, lupus caused disease, this drug is supposed to help you, right? My wife participated in the study for several years to test to test the drug Benlista by big pharma GSK, but you know uh, there was no perceived measurable positive effects of that drug on her at all. Now that the test is over, it would cause her. I want you guys to listen. Remember, I told you her other drugs was some total less than a hundred dollars a month. They're all off of, they're no longer on patent, right? So it's in the public domain. And by the way, most drugs are developed us anyway. But anyway, Benlista, the drug she tested, if she wants to partake in the, in taking that drug for her health, suppose it really mattered, it would cost her $42,000 per year. Again, I repeat, that's not a mistake. $42,000 a year if she wanted to use that drug. Again, one should remember all drugs were in some, were in some manner fund, uh, funded by taxpayers directly or indirectly. Yet, those drug-pushing terrorists continue to rip off Americans. Look, the statements in the ads are false and misleading. They claim that other countries that have price controls on drugs have significant wait times. Have you tried to get an appointment recently with a specialist? That's a huge wait time, isn't it? Have you tried to get a drug that you can't afford? They've turned you into a beggar if you want a drug that you can't afford because they're ripping you off. $42,000 with for one drug for one year, Ben Lista. Think about who can afford that. That is how much, that is more money than most Americans make every year for one drug. And if you take Ben Lista, you probably need more. They fatten the coffers of executives and shareholders that played no part in developing these drugs. The ad would have one believe that humane procedures in other countries to save the lives of most without causing their bankruptcy is somehow dangerous. The fact says otherwise. The Organization of Economic uh, Cooperation and Development, also known as OECD, is an international organization that works to build better policies for better lives. Their goal is to shape policies that foster prosperity, equality, opportunity, and the well-being for all. They rank countries in many areas, including healthcare. As drug companies and other health companies continue the pilfering of Americans, we continue to remain mediocre in life expectancy. Where do you think we land in all these industrialized countries and countries all over the world? We pay more than twice as much in healthcare than anybody else. And by the way, how is our life expectancy? Is it better than everybody else? Should it be better? We are pumping a lot of money into it. We are ranked 26th in the country. Every country that reigns in our big pharma and other, uh, and other personal wealth pilfering companies do much better than we do. Everyone that reigned them in, every country that reigned these, these savages in, They do better with life expectancy than we do. What kind of fools are we? 
Do not be fooled by these ads. They want you to support policies that go against your interests. They want you to pay as much as they can get out of you. Remember, I wrote a piece and I did a video a few few months back that says whatever what they charge you is whatever the market will bear and the total amount of your savings and everything that you could come up with. Do not be fooled. These guys are financial and healthcare terrorists. That's what they are. And until we call them out for what they really are, until we put this, you know, not because you're wearing a suit and a tie and you command six or seven figures mean you're worth it or you are a good person or you are deserving of it. They like to tell you if the government control prices, if the government start telling us we can't charge this, what will it do for innovation? The people who profit from healthcare, the people who profit from making these drugs are not the people who innovated to create them, are not the geniuses that created it. It's not the engineer, the, the physicists, the, the doctors. These are not the people making the trillions in profits from these, these things. So don't believe the lie that if somehow we stop these guys from making big profits, that somehow it's going to affect innovation. It's going to create less drugs. That is crap. It is scientifically crap. Why? It's not the scientists that make all the money. It's the shareholders that make all the money and the executives get in the bonuses. And you know what? They don't have a lot upstairs. They're not the ones that know to create the chemicals. They're not the ones that know how the body operates. They're not the ones that do these things. So do not buy the lie that somehow driving, forcing these guys to do things right would somehow affect innovation because if there's no profit, nobody's going to innovate. You don't have to ask People who know, engineers, doctors, physicians, uh, uh, physicists, we are naturally, we are naturally very curious. We are inquisitive. And that's why we innovate. We rarely innovate because there's a buck on the other side. What you have to understand is the corrosive nature of the capitalist does not apply to those who are subjected or subjective to the capitalists. Let's remember these realities. It is time for us to learn these things and no longer fall for the misinformation and the crap from the capitalist structure, from those who are leading unjustifiably. Folks, those commercials, those ads are effective. It is important that we share these, the truth, to prevent them from having their intended effect. Pete Buttigieg, I mean, everybody's been talking about the supply chain issue, the supply chain problem that's happening, and what is Biden going to do about the supply chain problem? And several, I, I'm going to hit this one time again, and that is, that is a private sector problem. I want you to listen to Buttigieg. He's not going to quite say it that way. No administration is going to say, we don't have control. It's a private sector who runs this stuff. We're going to, as, as, but they're coming to beg us. The private sector is coming to beg the government, give us a hand, give us a hand, because we just can't do it by ourselves. Something that they, when they're making money, they like to tell you, leave us alone. But I want you to listen to Buttigieg and then we'll take it on the other side because this is important for Americans to understand. This supply problem is a profit-based problem. They screwed the Americans to keep their profits high 
and give them more, uh, get, uh, make them at most, at, at best uncomfortable. Check this out. We'll take it on the other side. I want to move on because you mentioned uh, infrastructure. I want to talk about the supply chain crisis. Two weeks after the Biden administration announced that key ports would move to 24-7 operations, supply chain backlogs are still really not getting much better. There are persistent truck driver shortages, warehouses are overflowing, an estimated $24 billion worth of goods are stuck waiting to go through U.S. ports. So how uh, are these going to be fixed? And do you expect these persistent delays to continue through the holidays? Well, we are going to continue to see challenges. The steps that we're taking are making a difference. But uh, think about all of the things that have to happen to get a product to a shelf uh, on time. Uh, fundamentally, it's up to the producers, the shippers, and the retailers. And we're doing everything we can to help them move those goods across uh, infrastructure that's often outdated. Look, we've got demand that's off the charts. The Retail Federation is predicting an all-time record high in terms of sales. We've got supply, which is, uh, in some cases, actually up. But but not up uh, enough to keep up with that demand. And then uh, the biggest thing of all, of course, you have the pandemic. The pandemic is poking holes in supply, no matter how good any company or any administration is. We're going to keep working on things like uh, the port issues, smoothing out anything else that is within our control. But the only way we can really put these disruptions behind us is to put the pandemic in the rearview mirror, which is why the president has been leading decisively to do just that. If you notice, he said, we'll do what we can. And remember that it's the, it's the producers, the manufacturers and the suppliers whose job it is to get this done. I, I, I want folks to be clear here. The reason we are having a supply problem has everything to do with the private sector. They are the reasons why they have just-in-time inventory. They are the reasons why they didn't invest in infrastructure. They are the reason that they paid off the government to have lousy ports, lousy infrastructure. It is they who created the atmosphere that of failure that we currently see. It is the private sector who is responsible for these failures. Anyone who continues to say, let's just leave it up to the private sector, you're saying, let's just leave the pain of the people up to those who best profit from them. Don't you ever forget that. We want to change that. We have to have better government controlled by we the people who create the regulations that are necessary to prevent those folks who would profit on our backs from being able to screw us year after year decade after decade. We are honored to have Arturo Dominguez. He's a prolific uh, writer and he is the founder and editor at The Antagonist magazine, among many others. Recently, Arturo was elevated to a leadership position at WEOC, Woke Writers and Editors of Color. He is with us today to discuss many subjects, including his recent 1619 Project article. Arturo, I think this is the second or third or maybe four times you've been here with Politics Done Right. It's a pleasure, as usual, to have you with us. How are you doing today? Oh, man, happy to be here. Thanks for having me back. Well, look, man, I tell you, um, you, you you are the one who actually introduced me to woke uh, a group that I found quite interesting, a group that I found relaxing. And I mean, it just brought brought one spirit up. Why don't you, before we get into the subject at hand, tell us how you got in, involved with this particular group? Well, um, 
with woke, uh, it was founded by, you know, two black women, uh, Teresa Price and uh, Allison Gaines. Um, and it was uh, more of a, a medium centered uh, type of project or community. Um, I, I'm one of the first few that were invited in early on, um, you know, and I was in, at the time I was in search of some kind of community. Uh, I've been a member of, you know, writer groups that were uh, predominantly white. And and it's hard to when you're doing anti-racism work and, and touching on things that, uh, you know, others don't normally touch on, they're uncomfortable. So being in a, in a, a, a group that was, you know, very Anglo-centric uh, made it difficult. Uh, there's a lot of pushback. I mean, you know, instantly get kicked out for no reason, things like that. So when I came across this and I, and it was very early on, um, you know, one of the editors at Medium, Adrian Gibbs, who, who's, you know, a member of the group, she quickly supported it. And then, you know, Quintessa got involved and, you know, LA Justice got involved with managing our case for the 1619 project. And, you know, before long, I found myself in a community that was welcoming to uh, someone they consider of color, but, you know, is white passing. And um, it, it was it was interesting because I found myself in the group that was being run by black women and every one of them embraced me as their own. And I I treat my I, I treat everything, especially in black spaces. Um, you know, treat it as, as being a guest, you know, uh, by having that mentality, I feel like you're not necessarily walking on eggshells, but you're more cautious about what you say. Um, it, I think if white people took that same approach and, and were came from a place of more asking questions as opposed to pushing, you know, beliefs or whatever on people, then we could probably move further. So I found that in this community. Um, I found a willingness from a lot of writers that were anti-racism writers that were willing to put the stuff out there to try to make a difference, not just talk about it, but potentially offer solutions to problems. And I, I found that uh, a big selling point for me. Well, I can tell you just based on the adoration that folks have for you in that group, uh, <laughs> you you are not a guest man. You are you are the group. And in fact, you were one of the first that they asked to, as they did some restructuring, to ask to become a part of the leadership of that group. So congratulations about that. Thank you. Um, Thank you. One of the ways that I really got involved with you is when you uh, addressed the Black Latino issue. In other words, some of right. and you took a whole lot of flack from maybe passing Latinos as you just um uh, mm-hmm. uh well passing white Latinos as you kind of made and, and you took a lot of flack for it. This is not the subject of today's discussion, but why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Because what I always say about you is you've got some pelotas, dude. Yeah. Um <laughs> I appreciate that. I, I attribute my pelotas to uh, you know, my upbringing, man, in Jersey, uh, you know, in the you know 70s and 80s, it wasn't pretty. It was tough. And uh, so, yeah, I, I took that approach. Um, you know, when it comes to the backlash, you know, I'm I'm a pushback kind of guy. You know, everybody wants to take the approach of just stop, uh, you know, don't interact with anybody, you know, stop, just just let it go. Let it die down. But the problem is the more you ignore it, the, the more the bigger the fire gets. And uh, it it doesn't die down. And, you know, I'm not going to sit here and denounce cancel culture and culture and all that stuff. It's, it, 
it is what it is, you know, call it what you want. But to me, I, I call it consequence culture, but you know, you, <laughs> you say, you say racist things, you're going to pay for it, you know? Right. So, but uh, the backlash I got, I, I still get it. I still get backlash. Um, yeah, because that article went viral. Right. And, and I mean, if you look at, uh, uh, at the Latino rebels page right now and you open an article or you scroll to the bottom of the main page, um, mine is still top five trending. And that's been a, um, a year and a couple months now. Right. So uh, people are still reading it. People are still clicking from there to the tweets that are highlighted in the article, which are my tweets. And, you know, I still catch some heat here and there. I got one guy who he read like the first paragraph and then wrote a rebuttal calling me racist and all this stuff. And he's never read my work. He admitted he didn't read the article. But man, every Friday like clockwork he's trolling me and i laugh and i and i troll him right back i don't you know i don't play around like you know i don't block people i don't you know people threaten me like it because of that article i had people trying to dox me and uh and i could i could tell that's what they were doing and i told them look dude dox me don't dox me you want me to give you my address i'll give you my address but it's not like they can't find it i've been docked so many times it ain't funny you know right and you know what i tell people that threaten me I tell them, come on, you know, like come to my house because, you know, you might think I'm some fragile liberal or whatever, but I probably have more guns than you. So, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> and that's what I tell people. I'm like, go ahead, dude. I dare you. I'm waiting for you to come to my door. Okay. So just come, come. Welcome, yeah, I mean, they, they, these come. guys are generally just mouthpieces. as you and I that's want to. Every right. now and then you have the crazy right. that really goes through with these things. Yeah. And I think yeah, yeah. That, that you just have to be always watchful and, 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 and whether you're a writer or not, you always have to be watchful. Now tell me a little bit about, uh, at Woke, you you are a part of the 1619 project submission of articles. And I you submitted a recent article with respect to Latinos in 1619. Why don't you tell me a little bit about that? Okay, well, uh our, our 1619 project, uh just to clarify, is is not the same as the Nicole Hannah Jones and the New York Times um 1619 project. Our project is focused on making the case for the 1619 project. So one of the main categories that we we have it broken down into five different categories. I can't name them off the top of my head, but for the sake of this one, um, like my piece was focused on addressing criticisms. And um, most of the stuff that I read went after a lot of the white um, academics who basically teamed up, you know, and wrote a scathing op-ed to the New York Times, you know, claiming all these errors, this, that, and the other, Um, you know, not differentiating the fact that the 1619 Project from the New York Times is more of a journalistic piece than it is a historical piece, right? And the idea of the 1619 Project is to frame the narrative of what built the U.S., right, beginning with that day, that, that 1619, yeah. poor, poor comfort, right? Like we all know that part that day. And a lot of the arguments from the Latino community came from uh, a lot of Afro Latinos that were, um, they, their, their argument was that history, black history in the United States started prior to 1619. And while that's true to a, to a degree, none of those, you know, the, the Spaniards landing in uh, 
Panama. Uh, Saint, in St. Yeah. Augustine in the 1500s, right? Way before 1619. That didn't affect how the United States was built. It didn't, it, it, it happened. Nobody's denying it happened. But the 1619 project focus is from that day in Port Comfort is how um, today's uh, American capitalist society lives. And it, we all know that it, the capitalism in the United States can only thrive on exploited labor. Mm-hmm. And without, Without the slave labor force, you have, you know, what I've heard people refer to as wage slaves, which is basically, you know, you've got all these Latinos working the fields, harvesting food, feeding the nation. And they're not only being paid dirt, but they're being treated like dirt. They live in, you know, squalid conditions, things like that. So it, it, it the 1619 Project acknowledges those little things. So my my piece was focused on clapping back on those that that. Were really they really went after Nicole Hannah Jones and the 1619 Project, and I thought it was un- unfair, and I also thought it was in bad faith. I, th- I thought the arguments were disingenuous um, because they failed to read just the main entry point to the 1619 Project, which essentially discusses that it's a living document. You know, it's it may have some errors, and and you know there may be a few things missing here and there, but for the sake of of uh, of focusing on the U on, on U.S. history and, and what it's become today, that that's what they're missing. You see, they're not. They're, they're, Let me ask you something focus- because you, you 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 I think I think you in in, in stating that in, in one of the statements that you just made, I think you may have uh, co-opted to saying there were there were in fact some errors in the sixteen nineteen project as written by Hannah Jones. Is that really the case or is just the who tells the history that that really makes these errors errors? I, you know, I honestly think it's a little of both. There were um, a couple of errors and it was really just, you know, like for context, they needed to add a word here or something like that. You know, so, and these were and, corrected in, at the New York Times, right? Right. These were corrected and addressed, you know for journalistic integrity mm-hmm. that the edits were made that was brought to their attention. But when you read, if you just focus on the one scathing op-ed that was published at the New York times and, and they addressed it directly, which I commend them for, they even gave those guys space to talk their trash. But if you read that, I think that that's more focused on, I feel like it's more focused on who's telling the history. Like, exactly. 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 That's what what I wanted to get at, because I think too often, you know, even the parts of history that one interprets, you know, it's it it is subject to interpretation. You know, um, did the the, the Americans commit genocide in in America or not? Yes. They they would say, well, they attacked us and we'll say, well, you took their land. That's it. That's, you know, so. It's a, a matter right. of who tells a story. Anyhow, so, I mean, um, now, do you think that the Latinos, the Afro-Latinos that came against Anna Jones uh, on, on these articles were uh, pretty much used, uh, wanted, you know, or, or um, because we always have that problem, right? In a, a, you, you get a, a um, Candace Owen uh, or a this new guy that wrote a book about uh, wokeness or whatever it is he wrote about. I can't remember his name right now. Are right. these guys just being used for their hue, for their color, 
as a as a weapon, as a person that that they can say, look, even this guy thinks you're wrong. You know, I know I know a lot of people pointed to that. I don't I, I can't say that the motivations of some of the, the um, Afro Latinos and some, you know, from the academic community and stuff, too. Um, I can't say that the motivations were um, any anything like that. But but I do know that you you saw a lot of people point to these individuals and say, look, here's, you know, somebody else that said that disagrees with it, too. And they're black, you know, and uh, again, you're they're failing to realize the difference between, you know, being an Afro Latino and being black in America. You know, there's. There's a big cultural divide there, you know, like in my article, I, I mentioned how certain religions from, you know, Central and Western Africa uh, still live and still thrive in, in Latin America, all over mm-hmm. the place from Cuba to Colombia. Well, in the U.S., aside from like areas in Louisiana, they, there's no that identity is not there. There's no history of that. Santeria right. been, and all these other right. things, you know, it, it's all wiped out. So um so the black community, that's why they're black and they're not, you know, you know, Congolese or, or, or what have you. It's because all of that stuff was erased. Right. So, you know, for, for Afro Latinos, like in Cuba, there's, you know, direct connections to parts of Western Africa and things, and they celebrate that. And, you know, people don't realize it, but, you know, could, could, Cuba's a majority, you know, black, black. and, Cuba, Brazil, and several other Latin American countries. Yeah, Caribbean right. countries. Yeah, right. They're predominantly black, and and so and they understand where, you know, they came from. They understand that how their religions eventually mixed with Catholicism. That's how you got Santeria. And, and I mean, you know, again, Santeria was born of you know Western African spiritualism, and you know, blended with a little bit of Catholicism, because. You know, that's what the slaves had to do to make it acceptable to the priests. They had to inject a piece of Catholicism so that, you know, the priests are like, oh, you're worshiping Jesus, you know, fine. Right. And, and that that's how those religions were born. You don't have that here in the U.S. And, you know, that's why I feel like, I don't know, uh, Allison one day re- mentioned me, mentioned me being pro-black. And I, I've never considered Explain myself. Explain who Allison is first of all for the audience. Allison is one of the founders of writers and editors of color, Allison Gaines. And we were, we were in a chat one day, you know, just, I don't remember what we were discussing, but she mentioned that, that I was, you know, pro-black Latino writer. And I never saw myself that way, but once she mentioned it, I kind of, it kind of opened up like another door where I was looking at my work from that light. And I thought, you know, I guess I am a pro-black well, I mean, Latino writer. Because I mean, at the end of the day, when I ended my 1619 project article and I haven't pulled up, but, I said at the end of at the very end, I said, you know, because without black people, the American dream wouldn't exist. In a sense, everyone owes them for that, even immigrants, even the immigrants and Afro Latinos, even the Afro Latinos, exactly. Right, right, right. So yeah, and that's kind of how I feel about it. And and I get from that aspect, being that we owe them first, and we owe the indigenous people first before anybody else. And if you look at it from that perspective, then you you can begin to understand, you know, why we need to uplift them first. Well, you know, you call it uh, maybe Allison calls it pro-black. I, I, I find you to be a, a writer, an author that actually just goes out there and tells things the way they need to be told. Because, again, too often 
Uh, and, and again, and you upset folk in every, in just about every single group. So I mean, oh, yeah. it's like you're an equal opportunity offender, you know, Latinos, blacks, whites, everybody, you know, and that, that yes. is the, that is the art of, that shows an art form from a writer who really means what they're talking about and one should take seriously. Well, last question here, as we come close to the end, um, uh, uh, congratulations again for uh, your ascendance at woke. And I don't, I, I won't call you pro-black. I'll just call you pro-humane. And, uh, and, and, and secondly, I, last question is always, what would you have liked me to ask you? You know, you're, you've been with me before, so you know that question is yeah. coming. Why would you, what would you have liked me to ask you that I didn't? Um, you know, and I, I don't know why I'm never prepared for this. One. Um, <laughs> because, you know, I wanted to discuss, you know, uh, you know, the writers and editors of color group. Um, we did Let's that go ahead, go in ahead, the article, please. but yeah, you know, it, it's a, it's an interesting, I, I like it because, you know, in the writers and editors of color group, we do a lot of things, a lot of projects, um, like we do the black history 365 project, which, you know, we write about little known, uh, black history you know, throughout the year. It doesn't have to just be, you know, Black History Month. Um, you know, the case for the 1619 Project has been pretty exciting. You know, we get, we've gotten the attention of Nicole Hannah-Jones. Um, you know, she retweeted uh, my article and, you know, I have to give her credit because I think it was because of her that it blew up because um, there was a lot of talk in the Black community and, and on Black Twitter and in Black spaces about my article. And most of it was positive. Um, you know, and a lot of people were surprised that any Latinos even spoke out against the 1619 project because, you know, it's it, a lot of things in the Latino community stay in the Latino community. It's weird like that. But uh, so, yeah, I mean, I, I really enjoyed uh, the project. I enjoy the, the, the community um, and growing the community. It's a lot of fun. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, if I if I could think of what you didn't ask me about, because we did do the white Latinos thing, but um, I guess maybe about you know police accountability, you know, because I do a lot of that. Um, you know, cops hate me too, but you know, I also have a lot more cop friends than I ever had before. So, <laughs> so a lot of the things I write about apparently resonate with cops. So, you know, there's that, and and it's all about basically anything racial justice and the intersection of politics and race. That's, that's where I live, you know? Well, let me tell you, Arturo, you will be back. There's so much more that you have to talk to us about. Uh, yeah. It was my pleasure having you, Arturo Dominguez, the right. editor and founder of the Antagonist magazine and recently elevated to leadership of the writers of uh, writers and editor of color. Thank you so kindly for having been with Politics Then Right. Thank you for having me, Abrito. I love interacting with my audience. I love interacting with you wonderful people. Let me tell you something, first of all, where I come from. I believe everybody, most Americans, most people in the world are good people. I think there are influences, externalities that are the things that really creates all the isms my isms were created by how I was reared. How I was reared was created by how my parents were reared, etc., 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 and it goes on. Change is only made when it's intentional, when one decides that in order to have a better society, 
we actually make those changes within that then gets reflected without. I had a interesting conversation on my internet show, YouTube, Facebook, Twitch, uh, Twitter, and all these other places where it goes live. And there's one particular person who cons- who, who I don't think, this person is, I, is a nice person. He's actually a supporter of the show. And he said, Egberto, if you, if you look at everything through racial lens, then that's all you're going to see. Interestingly, I don't personally believe in race. But let me play this piece that I, uh, I cut that I did from the show yesterday because I think it's informative and I think it is something that uh, we need to get out there. And let me tell you how I know it's informative. My daughter listened as I was making the cut and she said, Dad, I like that part. A millennial told me she liked that part because it makes a difference. Check this out. We'll take it on the other side. When you view everything through a racial lens, all you see is race. Lee Grant, I promise you, people of color do not want to look at things through racial lens. Unfortunately, they are generally forced to do so. I am a guy that doesn't believe in race at all. But when I walk into the store, I, I see the eyes. I see the I get the following. When I walk into certain churches, I see what occurs. So instead of saying that we need to stop looking at everything through racial lens, I'm going to ask you, Lee, you're a good guy. You're also a good supporter, Brother Lee Grant. But I'm going to ask you to do something honestly. Lee Grant, because you're the one who made the statement, if you look at everything through race, then it, it is pervasive. I'm going to ask you the next time, the next time you are in an area that you are normally very comfortable in a white space and you see somebody different, whether Asian, black or whatever, be honest with yourself. You don't have to tell me. Just be honest with yourself and tell me if you have a slight reaction beforehand because what people of color always see when they walk into white spaces is not necessarily racism but an apprehension to who they are and when we can honestly accept that to the point that we make and I'm going to use myself as an example I don't want to play like I'm some goody too sure or anything like that because I'm not And I always use my transformation from being a homophobe into one of the biggest gay rights supporters with a whole lot of gay friends. And let me tell you what I mean by that. There was a time in my life when if I saw two men kissing, holding hands, two women doing this, it actually had a material... Even as I held back, it had a physical response on me. And that because of how the brain works and how I was cultured at home in Panama. I always tell people I have the three strikes. Black, Latino, and Caribbean. Very homophobic cultures. And I overcame that to the point now that it's not only mental, but it's also carnal. And it's important for us to get there. So... What I tell a lot of my white brothers and sisters is something that is quite easy to understand. And that is instead of telling people, when you hear black folk talk about 
we're always talking about race. Why don't you forget about it and somehow it's going to go away? Try to understand the space in which they live in and what they feel every time they go into the space and why they feel what they feel when they go into that space. We spend a lot of time deconstructing the news, trying to, trying to parse it into a form that everybody can understand. We try to find those little nitpicks where uh, it goes, it flies above the fray, etc. If you really like these videos that we do, I want to ask a big favor. Please go ahead, number one, subscribe to our channel. And number two, please join if you can. Thank you so kindly for watching. Keep watching. Please remember to share. We must populate the entire internet with our progressive message, a message that we know is what most Americans say that they want. So help us please join. I hope you like that. It's, uh, it's, it's an important concept. And what I asked Lee Grant to do, I, I, I want to make it an exercise for everybody. So please consider doing it whoever you are. You can get Politics Done Right Mondays through Fridays on Facebook Live at facebook.com slash politicsdoneright. On YouTube Live at politicsdoneright.com slash YouTube. Please do not forget to follow me on Twitter for updates. My handle is at Egberto Willis at E-G-B-E-R-T-O-W-I-L-L-I-E-S. Please remember to keep your community radio station KPFT in your minds. Talk about it. Tell your friends about it. Tell them you know about this station in town, 90.1 FM Houston, that needs your support, that is there to provide that nourishment that we need kpft.org visit us online contribute online kpft 90.1 fm you can visit us at kpft.org Welcome to Politics Done Right. I am your host, Egberto Willis. This is a progressive program that will take the mystery out of politics. This is the program.